This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. One of the trends that emerged with, I think, COVID was the, maybe it began before this, but certainly COVID exacerbated it. And then Andrew Yang's presidential campaign kicked this into high gear. You know what I'm going to talk about? You do. The trend that has taken hold of the whole country over the course of the last few years has been the necktie. You know, the necktie used to be a requirement. If you were dressed nicely, you absolutely had to have a necktie as an essential part of your wardrobe. And I think the more formal you're you're dressed regularly, the more that's expected. You know, I'm looking at... um, Two two news channels on right now, and there's people in neckties on all of them. And then I'm looking on uh, another news channel, and it's one person interviewing another person. Neither of them has a necktie, both the commentator and the guest. The guest happens to be Benjamin Netanyahu, a world leader. So a lot of people are wondering if the necktie will ever make a comeback because it is interesting these days few people are everyday necktie wearers now i'm not a daily suit wearer i'd say i wear a suit maybe once or twice a week and i'd say when i do wear a suit i wear a necktie maybe 80 to 90 percent of the time because i figure all right i'm wearing the suit i may as well wear a necktie the the exception to that is around December and January, I'm at my heaviest every year. So then when I wear a suit for a Christmas party or something, sometimes I'll go necktie free because the length, uh, the size of my neck does not allow me to button a shirt comfortably during those months, which are rapidly approaching. Don't remind me. But the accessory has been of the necktie has been, for men, has been quietly losing ground for years. And I guess it started maybe with Casual Friday. And then the pandemic and Andrew Yang, they just made this something that you're not required to do. It's not unusual for me to see. Even at a formal event, you go in and people are wearing suits or a sports. My kind of go-to semi-casual outfit is a sports jacket khaki pants, and a collared shirt. Open. And I don't generally wear the necktie. And I think I pull it off. I think that's kind of a good look for me. But I go to wakes all the time. I go to weddings. The necktie is vanishing. And so some folks are wondering, will the necktie ever make a comeback? 
will it ever be considered standard to wear a necktie to the office every day? Or is are we going to look at photos of people in neckties 50 years from now and look at them almost as if uh, the way we look at people who wore wigs in the 1780s and 1790s? Oh, I can't believe they ever wore that. What do you think? So uh, fashion critic Vanessa Friedman said the demise of the tie as a standard part of dress could mean the rise of the tie as an optional accessory to signify individuality. I am in general somebody that likes to preserve the good old days, preserve tradition. I like to preserve nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. I kind of don't mind this, though. I kind of don't mind the fashion trends going in a direction. I'm not saying everybody should show up to work dressed like John Fetterman, but I kind of don't mind people having the option to wear the the necktie. If you want to have a splash of individuality, that's great. And if not, you know, you go without the necktie look. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. 800-848-9222. You're also welcome to comment on uh, anything else that we've talked about thus far. I'm going to be joined by Allison Josephs, the founder and executive director of Jew in the City, in about uh, 20 minutes. But between now and then, there's uh, plenty of time for your phone calls. I have to mention this, though. The, I read an article in the uh, New York Times. I think it was the New York Times Magazine, actually, over the weekend. All about drugs. Now, I'm very concerned about drugs. I have a lot of concerns, not a lot of solutions, if we're being candid. I think that um, the use of drugs and the related drug overdose deaths are just abominable. And I think there are a lot of factors as to that. But here's what I found even more alarming. Millions According to this Times article, the um, the headline is a monster. Super meth and other drugs push crisis beyond opioids. So apparently, here's the deal. Millions of U.S. drug users are now addicted to several substances, not just opioids like fentanyl and heroin. This shift is making meaning to other drugs other than opioids is making treatment far more difficult. And it's not just fentanyl and hell and uh, heroin anymore, folks. You have, over the last three years, you have studies of people addicted to opioids. They've consistently shown that between 70 and 80% of them also take other illicit, illicit substances. And that shift is really hurting treatment efforts, and it's confounding state, local and federal policies. Dr. Kara Poland, associate professor at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. It's no longer an opioid problem, she said. This is an addiction crisis. So as I said, um, this I don't have any solutions here. I just have a lot of concerns. The non-opioid drugs include those relatively new to the street, like the animal tranquilizer Xylazine, which can char human flesh. Can you imagine? Anti-anxiety medications like Valium and Clonopin. And older recreational stimulants like cocaine and meth. Dealers sell these drugs 
plus counterfeit Percocet and Xanax pills, often mixed with fentanyl. The incursion of meth, which, uh, honestly, most of what I know about meth involves watching Breaking Bad, but the incursion of meth has been particularly problematic. Not only is there no approved medical treatment for meth addiction, but meth can also undercut the effectiveness of opioid addiction therapies. So if you're on a a drug that is designed to reduce your dependence on opioid and you're on the same at the same time on meth. Doesn't work. Meth apparently explodes the pleasure receptors, but it also induces paranoia and hallucinations. It works like a slow acid on teeth and heart valves, and it can inflict all sorts of long-lasting brain changes. So I don't know what the solution is here, but it is certainly cause for concern. I'm going to link to this article if you want to read it. Uh, It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan. It's uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. If uh, you don't have a subscription to The Times, just go to archive.ph and Copy and paste the URL in there. All right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Larry, I got oh, you. Oh, hi, Frank. I'm here. I'm here. All right. What's on your okay. mind, pal? Yeah, you you were talking about Gavin Newsom uh, before with Larry Elder, right? Well, he was talking about him, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it may, it may not be a mainstream point, but I think the nation has to know that this guy has a serious character flaw in that he saw fit to torture an old woman and keep her in prison another 10 years. I'm talking about Patricia Periwinkle, who was involved in the um, uh, Tate LaBianca murders simply as a drugged-up young woman, along with Susan Atkins, who died in federal prison of a brain cancer. She was a beautiful young woman, and they let her rot in prison, and she, she died like a monstrosity. And Newsom had no mercy on this woman. She was in her 70s. She came up for parole like five times. He denied her. Finally, she got out in her 70s. There's something very wrong with this guy, and I'm telling you. Yeah, I think her name was actually Patricia Krenwinkel, not uh, not Perry Winkle. Right. But uh, your point's well taken. Thanks, Larry. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. David, how's your health been? Uh, not so great. I'm oh. looking at a nine month recovery at the very I'm least. Sorry to hear that. Skin grafts and things like that. So, um, but anyway, um, the reason I called is because of the comments made by Larry Elder regarding uh, the use of the word vermin by uh, former President Trump. Let me uh, let me play it again in case people didn't hear it, David, and then you can certainly comment as you uh, as you see fit. This is the comment that uh, David's talking about. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections, and will do anything possible. They'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Uh, David, something tells me you do not share Larry Elder's view of those comments. Um, Absolutely not. 
as a amateur historian, I know that that word vermin has been used in Nazi Germany. It was used in Rwanda before the genocide. It's been used many times throughout history. Because when you dehumanize people by reducing them to the equivalent of bed bugs, cockroaches, or rodents, that is a very dangerous thing. No president, former or current, has ever referred to his fellow citizens as vermin. And what does he mean by rooting them out? What do you do after you root out vermin exactly? Usually you exterminate them. This is very dangerous. And I don't know if Donald Trump is intellectually capable of understanding the meaning of these words when he throws them out there like that, but it's highly irresponsible. And for someone like Larry Elder, who sounds serious, to make light of it, it's not the same as Hillary calling Trump supporters deplorables or, or President Biden referring to MAGA. That doesn't imply extermination, okay? And that Trump would use this on Veterans Day and also around the same time as the anniversary of Kristallnacht is appalling. And I'm surprised that no Republican of any stature has bothered to call him out on this. It's unacceptable, Frank. And I expect you to understand it as well, because I believe you're at least equal to me in your understanding of history and the use of words and how important they are. Yeah, I uh, I, I think it was totally inappropriate. I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think if you're going to give a, a, an address on Veterans Day, you should talk about, you know, I don't know, veterans, something along those lines. Uh, but so I, I don't think it's a good idea to even make the event political at all. But let's say you do think it's an appropriate thing to do. I think the use of that kind of language in politics is is uh, totally inappropriate, period, uh, any day of the week, uh, especially on Veterans Day. But, uh, yeah, I, um, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say that, um, you know, it's a kind of a Nazi dog whistle, but I'll just say it's not how people should be talking in the political arena. And honestly, I did vote for uh, President Trump twice, but it's honestly language like that that makes it tough. And uh, I really, I really think that that is corrosive. To the civic discourse, you know, I, I it's um, it's a sad thing when you have a situation where or live in an era where people don't want their child to grow up to be president of the United States anymore. But I honestly feel like that's where we are, that we're at a point where parents no longer have that aspiration for their children. I um, I. I think that's such a shame. And I think the more uh, conduct like that in the in the political uh, sphere, even including by people that I like, it it's terrible. I think it's just awful. And it's funny. Somebody sent me a video yesterday. It's a, it's a local political issue, so I won't bore you with the details. But it was a video of a half hour kind of mini documentary over a dedicated, very honest public servant, and it just bashes this person like crazy over the migrant crisis. And it has this person has nothing or almost nothing to do with the migrant crisis. I'm going to say nothing. And you wonder why anyone would want to do this, given that that's what you get. And the person that sent this to me said, Oh, here's so-and-so, an honest public servant, exactly the kind of person that we want more of in public life, and this is what they do. 
That's why you have so few people like so-and-so and so many more people like blank. And he mentions another politician that we knew who is just kind of in it for the wrong reasons, I'll say. So I do find it very um, – I do find it disconcerting and uh, I don't think that that's an appropriate use of uh, of the term at all. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism and the rather dramatic rise in anti-Semitic violence and rhetoric that has taken place in the United States and around the world with Allison Josephs of Jew in the City. She joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I saw a rather alarming headline yesterday, so much so that uh, I thought it was wrong. I thought it was a misprint. I thought it was one of those things where the headline said one thing, but you would read the first sentence or the first paragraph of the article, and you would see that the headline was in error. Sure enough, it was not. The headline that I saw was anti-Semitic attacks in the country have risen by 388%. 388%. Now, if things weren't uh, bad enough for the country, for the world, and for the Jews in light of what's going on in the Middle East, you'd think that maybe you wouldn't have to deal with an uptick in anti-Semitic events, which was already pretty substantial. Someone who has been uh, an incredible communicator, educator for both the Jewish and Gentile community, both the Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jewish community, someone who has dramatically expanded my knowledge of a number of different aspects of American Jewry in particular has been Allison Josephs. She's the founder and executive director of Jew in the City. It's always great to talk with her. Uh, unfortunately, not necessarily when it's about the kind of circumstances we're seeing of late. Allison, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks so much for having me. Allison, for people that are unfamiliar with your background, you have a pretty fascinating background. You did not grow up practicing as an Orthodox Jew, but now you are, correct? Yeah, correct. I was raised as a proud conservative Jew, uh, but the interesting thing about the Jewish community until very recently, and what I will tell you is that since October 7th, we have probably seen historic unity in the Jewish community, thank God. But before that time, uh, there's unfortunately a lot of divisiveness in the Jewish community. And so while I was a proud conservative Jew, I was like normal Jewish. And then the Orthodox were like too much, too Jewish, you know, kind of a little too backwards, a little too extreme. No, thank you. Um, when I was eight, there was a triple murder in my public school. Um, one of my friend's fathers uh, had a mental breakdown and mm. killed the whole family. And this basically sent me on this sort of existential crisis to figure out, does life have a meaning? Do I have a purpose? 
I was raised to think that the traditions in my heritage were too much, too crazy. But I ended up meeting uh, an Orthodox teacher in high school. And all the things that the media had told me about my traditions, um, I learned in real life, actually, was a really not fair take uh, on how they are for many people if they experience them in a happy and healthy way. So I started becoming more observant myself. My family ended up joining me. Um, and we kind of landed in maybe what you would call modern orthodox or centrist orthodox, where we are you know, very religious, but also very integrated into the larger world. What is Jew in the City? So Jew in the City um, was basically my attempt to take back the narrative about the Orthodox community. Um, I started working in Jewish outreach pretty much after I realized that I had essentially been betrayed about my own heritage Hmm. and only seen my traditions as something to run away from and mock. Um, And I was working at different Jewish outreach organizations, and I was interviewed by a journalist from Spain in 2005. Uh, There are not many Jews left in Spain because they took care of us about 500 years ago. She was curious about the Orthodox community working on a story in Brooklyn and did an interview on me. And as she left our house, I realized that we have the worst PR. And if we could only do something to tell a different side of our story, maybe more Jewish people and non-Jewish people would have a more nuanced understanding of the community. As I was looking for a mechanism to tell a more nuanced, authentic story, this thing called YouTube had recently been invented. This is 2005. And instead of relying on mainstream media that is so biased against the Jewish community, um, you could broadcast yourself. So it began first as a YouTube channel, and then over time blossomed into a full-fledged nonprofit. Um, A couple years ago, we launched the first and only Jewish Hollywood Bureau. What we discovered was that every other minority group had been advocating for decades, in most cases, within studios and networks in Hollywood, for fair and authentic and nuanced depictions, to get consultants in the room, to have studies done, to have fact sheets, and to have a real mechanism to get away from the tropes and stereotypes and see characters that are whole and human that the viewer can relate to. And no one ever did this for the Jews before because there's this sense that Jews have all the power and all the money and are super white. But we actually launched this first Bureau for Jews because our depictions really are problematic. Well, I want to ask you about that, if time permits, but there's a lot that I want to cover with you in a relatively short amount of time. But if we don't get there, if people are interested in learning more about Jew in the City, whether it's the Hollywood Bureau or anything else, including some links to some uh, terrific videos, you can go to JewInTheCity.com, simple as that, JewInTheCity.com. It's a great website, a lot of great content up there. A whole world opens up. Last thing that I'm going to ask you just about, about where your upbringing has led you. My sister-in-law is kind of in a similar position in that uh, she became a practitioner of Orthodox Judaism later in life. She actually grew up mm. as uh, as an evangelical Christian. And mm. I've seen some of the things that she has had a difficult time with and uh, some of the things that she's really embraced. I- I'm curious, as somebody that didn't grow up in an Orthodox household necessarily, what is the toughest thing about being Orthodox. I know there's this reputation that uh, it's very strict, that you can't do a lot of other things that um, that reformed Jews, maybe even conservative Jews can do. Is there anything that you find 
particularly difficult about an Orthodox Jewish lifestyle? So look, when I was first starting this journey um, in my late teens, I used to try on my cute uh, jeans in the mirror and like kind of miss um, that, you know, certain styles that mm. I wasn't able to wear. I actually cut my jeans open and turned them to a very cute jean skirt. <laughs> um, and the truth is that I've actually um, been able to take so many aspects of my old lifestyle, like bacon cheeseburger, and then like replicate that with like, you know, turkey bacon or soy bacon. Um, I still love to go, you know, suntanning. I just find a private beach to go out and do that in. So the truth is that, like, the things that I enjoy doing in my secular days, I found so many ways to, you know, find a way to fit them into my observant Jewish life. Um, and again, remember that I'm someone that was searching for a purpose to existence. Mm -hmm. So even if I miss an event, you know, during some holiday time, um, having a purposeful life, um, it, when I kind of, you know, weigh the two uh, possibilities out, um, it really pales in comparison. And to be honest, you know, I love my life and my way of life so much. And it's so horrible to constantly be put down by other people, by media, and looked at as if, you know, we need saving or we need help or updating, uh, because there are so many of us that really do love our way of life and find so much meaning and joy in it. Well, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the program, because uh, I, I think you are very successful in dispelling a lot of the myths that uh, people that might just be ignorant of this have. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Allison Josephs, the founder and executive director of Jew website, JewInTheCity.com. Allison, th this may sound like a silly question or an overly simplistic question, but I've asked this question on the air and I've had a lot of Jewish callers weigh in on this, both um, secular Jews, religious Jews of varying degree. And I uh, have not gotten a consensus on the answer to this. But one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, people that I know that have gone to prison, a lot of them tend to, irrespective of what their religious background was prior to going to prison, they tend to become Christians. And the more serious the crime that they are sent to prison for, the more uh, devout Christian they proclaim to be. And I don't think it's a ruse. I think they really do find some solace in this. And one person told me, I may have read it somewhere, I don't remember where, that part of the reason that this was the case is because Christianity basically says that anybody can go to heaven. No matter how horrible the crime that you committed has been, you can make your way to heaven if you, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. And one question that I am unclear on, and I'm not necessarily going to ask you to speak for all Jews, but I'll ask you just to speak for yourself, is do you believe in heaven? Do you believe that when you die, you go to heaven? Um, yeah, sure. I'll speak on behalf of uh, what Jewish tradition says. There's something called Olam Haba, the world to come. Um, and the Jewish perspective on this is that depending on the kind of person you are in this world will be the way you experience the world to come. So if uh, we have a video on this, actually, where we liken it to um, learning to appreciate classical music. Um, if you spend a lot of time really honing this skill and developing a deep appreciation, when you go to the big concert, it will be um, utter ecstasy. If you find that classical music is so-so, and you can kind of appreciate it, but it's not the best thing ever, you get to the conference, and it's okay, not the best, not the worst. If you despise classical music and you find it repugnant and then you go to the concert, 
um, is torture. And Mm. so for Jews, this is actually how we describe the world to come. How much did you turn yourself into a godly person? Did you spend your days um, becoming more kind, more compassionate, more truthful? The more godly you become, the more when you sit in the presence of the Almighty will you appreciate that experience. The more that you are dislike uh, the Almighty, the more painful being in front of that light will be. Um, So that's kind of the traditional Jewish approach. All right, let me begin with uh, the issue that first caused me to uh, ring you up today, which is the headline that I saw that uh, anti-Semitic attacks in this country, uh, we're not even talking about what's going on abroad, but anti-Semitic attacks in this country have risen by 388%. What what about this, Allison? What do you think is driving this uptick in not just anti-Semitic rhetoric, but uh, anti-Semitic violence? I mean, I think there's been a growing um, anti-Semitism in parts of the country for quite some time. Um, and the truth is that it exists in all segments of society. Um, I kind of feel like the Nazis got their turn the last time around. We had the right-wing fascists and there seems to be an anti-Semitism problem endemic in the left. Uh, Jewish people generally tend to be a very left-leaning group of people. Uh, there's a sense, even for those who are not religious, that we have a certain job in this world to heal the world, to repair what's broken. And so for people that have that mindset, they might think that you know living as a liberal um, is a way to kind of do that service. Well, I can tell you, speaking to um, many friends, uh, you know, across the political spectrum, but especially a lot of liberal and progressive friends, there is a sense of sheer and utter um, betrayal. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, this notion in social justice that has become popularized in the last several years, that it's the job to dismantle power Um, And if we just dismantle the uh, power dynamics, then we will achieve justice in the country. So one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes out there is Jews are overmoneyed, overpowered, and um, need to be taken down. And so this fits very neatly into this sort of woke dynamic of dismantle the power. And so this stuff was certainly brewing for quite some time. Um, but this, uh, you know, horrific October 7th attack on Israel kind of made, gave people a little bit more of a sense of being emboldened to take to the streets to celebrate these gruesome, um, you know, uh, massacres and rapes and torture. Um, and it, it's such a, a mind boggling thing to consider that you could be blamed for your own massacre. People would celebrate your massacre. People would, um, you know, contextualize your massacre. And then at the same time, they would gaslight you and say it didn't even happen. That's all that we've been experiencing since October 7th. So let's talk about the world since October 7th. Obviously, you have this horrible attack from uh, Hamas, a lot of innocent people not only killed, but a lot of innocent people still being held hostage by Hamas. Give me your thoughts to uh, what we're seeing, uh, not only in terms of the actual military aspect of things, the war, but the reaction to the war that we're seeing in this country and all over the West. You know, it's almost like uh, we fell through the looking glass and, you know, we're in this like upside down world right now. Um, Hamas targets civilians like that's their stated goal. They bombed a hospital three times in Israel 
Nobody said a peep. Nobody cared. And that hospital was treating Jews and Arabs and Palestinians. Israel was accused of bombing a hospital. It turned out that it was actually Islamic Jihad rocket that fell short because they have their launchers right behind the hospital. The whole world ran to do a blood libel and, you know, um, convict Jews of targeting uh, the innocent. And then once, you know, the different uh, tests came out and it was pretty much decided that it was an Islamic Jihad rocket that fell short, the corrections were very hard to come and did not make a lot of noise. Um, You know, Israel, I just read today, they are giving incubators for the hospital that they're taking apart right now because Hamas has their uh, central terror unit underneath the Shifa hospital. Mm. Um, and Israel is bringing in incubators to try to uh, save the lives of the preemie babies. So um, whenever the news reports reality, um, Israelis look good. Israelis look like the most ethical army in the planet by, you know, calling people, calling thousands of Palestinians to ask them to leave. Um, they, um, you know, hack into their television programs to give them a warning that they're going to be taking apart the terror structure that Hamas has embedded into their residential area. They do warning shots. They drop down leaflets. There is no other army in the world that takes such precautionary measures to try to minimize collateral damage. You know, Obama um, made this comment that Israel has the right to defend itself and also, you know, no clean hands. Yeah, no clean hands. And also, you know, you better not kill babies. I'm sorry. What did the U.S. do when they took down ISIS? What did the U.S. do when they took down Al Qaeda? What did the U.S. and the allied forces do when they took down the Nazis? Um, It's it's like living in a parallel universe. And I do turn to my spirituality here, and I'll tell you why my faith is very helpful here. Um, It says in the Talmud that when the Jews received the Torah at Mount Sinai, um, in in Hebrew it's called Sinai, um, that the hatred of the world, the Sina, the hatred of the world, that's how we say it in Hebrew, um, sort of was put onto the Jews. And so Jews in exile face a certain spiritual reality called Sina, called anti-Semitism. And the way out of this for the Jewish people is to return to our traditions, to unite with one another, and to call out to God sincerely. And um, I think that Jewish people, who are a pretty secular group overall, and I think kind of a lot of them are kind of done with God after a couple thousand years of uh, intergenerational trauma, I am seeing Jewish people realize that there are no other avenues right now. We are 15 million small. Um, There are so many people that are against us, and there is a sense of Jewish people waking up now and kind of feeling like a return to their heritage may be the only option they have left. And, you know, we're almost out of time, but I hope you'll come back in the future because I'd love to continue this discussion and pick your brain on a whole bunch of other things. Uh, We could do an hour on the Hollywood aspect of things alone. I'm uh, pretty curious about that. But uh, and uh, by the way, people just tuning in, we're talking with Allison Josephs. She's the founder and executive director of Jew in the City. You can check out the website, JewInTheCity.com. You can also go to uh, the YouTube and just type in Jew in the City. In your view, Allison, understanding obviously uh, where uh, your sentiments are with respect to this war, 
Can you be supportive or can one be supportive of Israel and want them to uh, crush Hamas and be able to live in peace and in security and still not want to see Palestinian civilians killed and advocate for something like a humanitarian pause or a ceasefire? Or are those two views completely at odds in your view? I mean, a ceasefire would just give Hamas a chance to, um, you know, fight back harder and, uh, you know, make things worse for Israelis. Anytime someone... So let me just preface this by saying, of course, any peace-loving person, any innocent person in Gaza that is living under Hamas and wants to escape, my heart goes out to them. Um, I, I hold them in my heart like I hold any innocent person living under a terrorist regime. But for any person that goes to that ceasefire uh, way of thinking, I would ask them, do you pray for the Russians as Ukraine fights back after Russia invaded them? Did you pray for the Afghanis? Did you pray for the innocent Germans that were living under Hitler? I think that people probably should. They should hold compassion in their heart for the people that are living under different tyrannical or terrorist regimes. The thing is that we don't usually hear about that. We didn't see anybody raising money for Russia after Putin attacked Ukraine and Ukraine fought back. Everybody had a Ukrainian flag. If the world was normal, everybody would have an Israeli flag after Hamas attacked Israel. But that's not what happened. So, yes, I think we for sure should think about the innocent people that get caught up in a war. But test this out on yourself. Go back to any other conflict when there's one side that's an aggressor, when there's one side that's a terrorist and attacks a sovereign nation. What's the world's response of the people living inside the terrorist nation? Yeah, no, that's a uh, that is absolutely a fair point. Last point I'll ask you about is uh, the issue of free speech. This has been very divisive, not only here, but uh, abroad. You have a situation now where uh, pro-Palestinian protests are banned in Germany and in France, not pro-Israel protests. Those are allowed. Uh, U.S. pro-Palestinian student groups have been banned by folks like uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida, certainly not pro-Israel groups. And some people have said that you're seeing a situation where people are arrested in the West for anti-Israel signs, but not anti-Palestine signs or anti-Palestinian signs. Understanding that, um, you know, you're as big a, a supporter of Israel as you, you there is. Where do you think free speech comes in? As long as people aren't vandalizing things and destroying things, do you think that pro-Palestinian protests in the West should be able to, and maybe even in Israel for that matter, should be able to go forward? You know, so I think what you have to think about in terms of the way these different protests or marches look, when Jewish people congregate to have a march for Israel, we sing songs of peace and hope. That's literally what we do. We sway and we sing songs of a day when peace will like, come to the entire world because our dream of peace includes everyone. What's happening at these pro-Palestinian marches is that they are saying genocidal chants against the Jewish people. They are calling for um, a worldwide jihad, which means that Jews all around the world are fair game to be attacked. Um, they're saying from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. That is um, literally genociding the entire nation of Israel, where over half of the Jews in the world live. 
Um, and so I think an incitement to violence um, is a very different thing than um, a call for peace. If there are Palestinians that want to go out and march for peace um, and want to talk about what it would look like to live in a world of peace um, and brotherhood um, and side by side with different types of people, I would love to join that march. But don't have a march calling for the genocide of a people because that should be problematic. And, and it is leading to violence. Um, there was a guy in Los Angeles who in the middle of a, a Palestinian protest where they were calling for the genocide of Jews, uh, one of the protesters bludgeoned the man in his head with a megaphone. He fell to the ground. Mm. And then instead of n- news reports talking about the fact that this man was just murdered, even though the coroner said it was a murder, they were literally being the lawyer of the murderer and saying that he called 911 and cooperated with police. Um, excuse me? <laughs> Gee, he thanks. just bludgeoned a man to death, and they were calling him elderly. He was 65 years young. This man could have had decades more of his life, but he was at a protest that was calling for the destruction of the Jewish people. And then one of the protesters went out and took those matters from words to action. So there is a reason that Jewish people are concerned with the rhetoric that's happening here, because they're not calling for peace and hope. They're calling for our destruction. Yeah, uh, that uh, gentleman's name was uh, was Paul Kessler, and you talk about just what a, a tremendous cal, uh, what a tremendous tragedy out there in California. Allison, it's always enlightening. I uh, always learn a great deal from our chats, and I'll hope we can chat again soon. Hopefully, under better circumstances. God willing. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Allison Josephs, uh, founder and executive director of. Jew in the City. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Singing Wonderful Tonight. Uh, This is a uh, birthday bumper music selection by the lovely and talented Rachel Yellen. Uh, She always looks great. Married to my friend Darren, a great guy in his own right. I am going to get to your calls in a moment. Uh, Two open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. 
You know, it's funny. I uh, I sent someone an SMS text message yesterday, and I, I've gotten this before, but I got an automated response back. And I get this with people. This is what it said. I'm driving with do not disturb while driving turned on. I'll see your message when I get where I'm going. Then another message right after this, just in response to one text message. I'm not receiving notifications. If this is urgent, reply urgent to send a notification through with your original message. Why do I mention this? Because we live in an era where you can program your communications devices, your computers, your uh, mobile phones, whatever you use to communicate that's electronic, to automatically respond to certain things. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to figure out a way that if anyone emails me or sends me an SMS text message asking me to do anything or be anywhere on any weekday um, before 3 p.m. and after 7 a.m., I am going to have it automatically programmed to just say uh, no. Politely, but I'm going to have it automatically programmed to say, I'm sorry, I would love to, but I just can't be there. The you know, So yet today, I had agreed to go to this thing today, this morning around 11.30 it starts, probably goes to about 2.30. This is prime sleeping hours for me. And it's a, it's a broadcasting-related event. I, I should probably be there. It's probably a good networking opportunity. Maybe I'll pick up some new stations. Maybe I'll meet some interesting people that will be good guests. Maybe get some new advertisers. But it's uh, going to be, you know, Tony Danz is going to be there. Bill Whitaker is going to be there. It's going to be an interesting event. So, um, and the person that invited me to this is a good friend, and she kept inviting me to things. And I kept saying no, and I just kept feeling guilty. I said, all right, I'll, I'll tough it up. I'll, I'll go and go to this thing. But initially, my plan was to just drive in like I always do and stick around a few hours uh, later than I normally do and then drive back when it's over. But my wife tells me when I send her this information, she says, no, that's a Tuesday. Remember, that's the day that I have to take Beth Sheba for chemotherapy in New Jersey. So I need the car. We're down to one car now. She said, I need the car. Oh, okay. I got to get the car back. I said, all right, I'll I'll make an effort to get it back early. But it just also so happens that my father and stepmother were going to spend the day with uh, our son today. They were going to take him to the library. I said, maybe they could spend, they were initially just going to spend the morning with him. I said, maybe they could spend the whole day with him so I don't have to rush back. I know you need the car, but maybe what I'll do is I'll take the bus into work and then I'll just stick around. This way, I don't have to pay to park or anything like that because I'm pretty tapped out. I'm rapidly approaching the red in my bank account, and my uh, credit cards are just about, you know, at their limit. So I really don't want to pay $30 to park somewhere. So I thought, let me do this. Let me take the bus in, and I'll just stick around, and that'll be that, and I'll just come by after it's over. Then it was getting late in the evening. The way public transportation is where I live, it's not that frequent. So I had pretty much missed my opportunity to take the bus. So this is what now my plan is. I drove in today, 
I am going to drive back, sleep for two or three hours, shower, get changed, and then take the bus back in. Hopefully sleep on the bus and go to this event and then take the bus back and then start my work day. So this is uh, the best laid plans of Mice and Moranos do not always come to fruition. My automatic answer to any event that does not involve William Shatner that takes place before 3 p.m. any day of the week is now no. It's just automatically a no. You know, my friend Mario DeRay is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he he, he works for the county clerk. And ostensibly they're not allowed to go to political events. So what Mario DeRay said to me is he created the perfect excuse, no, no, the perfect response to any invitation. He says, uh, as much as I'd love to be there, my present position precludes me from attending. I said, Mario, you didn't invent that. I hear people say they can't go to things all the time. He said, no, 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 no. What you don't understand, what I did is I added the words, I'd love to. And so this way, even though I can't be there, People don't feel bad that I can't be there. And sure enough, it's worked out well for him. So from now on, that is my go-to response to any event that takes place between 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. during the week. As much as I'd love to be there, my present position precludes me from doing so. Now, again, it's one of those things where I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to going. It's nice of this person to invite me. She bought a table. She could have invited a lot of other people. But it's just all this stuff is just really more of a burden than anything else. All right. Charlie, Kevin, Rick, Alan. uh, Well, maybe not Rick. He's kind of just saying the same thing he always says. But the rest of you, I will get to you after the top of the hour. And then uh, we'll also chat with Steve Maglio, who will be here as well. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, 800-848-9222 is our phone number. We'll go through your emails a bit later. My email is uh, frank.morano, that's frank.m-o-r-a-n-o, at redappleaudionetworks.com. And uh, in the words of the late, great Barry Farber, keep asking questions. <laughs> 